From chapter 19 and verse 1, you have uh, Jesus moving, advancing intentionally, purposefully toward the cross. From chapter 21, verse 1, where we started reading today, it's really the beginning of the first uh, of this week of Passover, this Passion Week, as it's called. And where we come to in today's passage from verse 23 of chapter 1 and following, it's basically the Tuesday of Easter week and the start of what we have are three temple controversies. So there's a bit of contention here. Um, But as we come to read God's word, first of all, uh, let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live lives that please you in every way bearing fruit and good work, growing in the knowledge of who you are, being strengthened with all power according to your might, so that we might endure in the faith and joyfully give thanks to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 21, verse 23 and following. This is what God's word says. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Amen. This is God's word. Well, imagine for a second that you're in a car driving along the city bypass, You're in the inside lane, and you're singing away to whatever, take that, or Tina Turner. It's your imagination. Do what you want with it. Uh, When you notice someone in the outside lane trying to get your attention, they've hooted their horn a couple of times, and they're kind of signaling you with their hands and mouthing. You're no lip reader, but you know what they're saying. They're saying, pull over. What are you going to do? Well, you might say, well, that depends on who's asking you to pull over. If the car has blue lights on top and the driver's wearing a police Scotland uniform, what are you going to do? You're going to pull over, aren't you? 
forgive you wicked people who were saying, I'm going to put the foot down. No, you're going to pull over. You're going to do what you're being told to do. But if that person who's signaling to you to pull over is driving a Nissan Micra, and you spot Sainsbury's shopping bags in the back seat, and if they've got a cigarette lodged in their front two fingers and they're saying, pull over, what are you going to do? You're not going to pull over, are you? Well, you might out of interest to say, what are you doing just to hear what they're going to say? And then he said, you're not going to pull over. But why is that? Well, because, well, it's simple, really. They do not have the authority to pull you over, not like the police officer does. No authority to give instructions and demand certain tasks of others belongs to those to whom certain authority has been given. And when you recognize that authority, you do what they say. In other words, when you know who's in charge, you know what to do. It's really quite simple. And in our passage today, the religious leaders of Israel are making a major mistake. And they would do well to pay attention to that principle. When you know who's in charge, you know what to do. They're the ones who are questioning Jesus' authority. Like the police officer, he's been signaling them all the way along throughout his ministry, repent and believe the good news. He's had some head-to-heads with these guys before and encouraged them to repent of their hypocrisy. He's warned them. And in passages like leading up to this one, he's come into the temple like it's his own house. And it's like he's stamping his own authority on it. He shut down the temple trade. He's brought the, the blind and the lame into the temple, into the spaces vacated by the traders, and he is healing them. And at the same time, he is standing there like he is some chief priest. He is teaching crowds of people about the good news of the gospel. And the religious leaders don't recognize his authority. They treat him like he's the Nissan micro driver. Who are you to do all this? Who do you think you are? By what authority, it says in verse 23, are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Well, they don't do what they should do. They do the opposite and get themselves into deeper trouble. They reject his authority and question, would you believe the Lord of all the universe like they're in charge? And that's one of the reasons why this text is very important for us today. Because that kind of rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ, despite his display of that authority in his teaching, in his, the display of his authority over wind and waves, uh, over creation, over the spirit world. He's driving out demons. People still reject him. People today still reject the authority of Jesus, won't take him at his word and submit to it, given his authority. So Jesus responds to these religious leaders and indeed to anyone who has a problem with his authority in two particular ways. Two things in this passage that shape really the sermon as well. Number one, you know who's in charge, verses 23 to 27, and you know what to do, number two, that's 28 to 32. First of all, you know who's in charge. 
in chapter, in, in verses 23 to 27, Jesus responds to their question in a way that says, uh, you know who's in charge, it's not you, it's me. And he does that by bringing up the subject of John's baptism. Now, this is John the Baptist, who we met earlier on in, in the book of Matthew. And baptism, John's baptism really is just a, an umbrella term for all of John's ministry. And Jesus asks these chief priests, these elders, these guys who make up part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the people of God, and he says, John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or is it of human origin? And straight away, they're in a pickle for two reasons. First of all, John repudiated the ministry of these religious leaders. They weren't hanging out together at weekends chatting about ministry. You know, they weren't in some kind of gospel partnership. No, in, in Matthew chapter 3, these religious leaders we read are actually going out to, all, to the place by the Jordan where John was baptizing lots of people. Loads and loads of people were going out there. There were crowds but they didn't go out there with tears on their cheeks in repentance. They went out there with their clipboards. They were making an assessment of John. And they didn't like John's ministry. In their view, it was effectively unauthorized ministry. John hadn't come to them as a Sanhedrin and said, I'm really thinking about starting up some kind of repentance ministry. It might involve a lot of water, etc. I think a good place to do it would be by the Jordan. Is that okay with you? Didn't do any of that. He just went ahead and did it because his authority wasn't from them, of course, it was from God, and that's the point. His baptism ministry was a get right with God ministry. It was get ready for the coming king kind of ministry. These guys would never have endorsed it. The religious leaders actually didn't believe that they needed to repent and be baptized. Really, only at that time, non-Jews who wanted to become Jewish did that. After all, these religious leaders had the kind of mindset where they thought, I mean, I mean, we're Abraham's children. We are already in the kingdom. We don't need to be baptized into it. We were born into it. So they rejected John's baptism in that sense. But when they turned up in Matthew chapter 3, John and didn't welcome them and say, come and let me introduce you to my pastoral team, etc. He was like, you brood of vipers. That's an intro. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So John, in that, repudiated their authority. He didn't need the rubber stamp. God had already given it to him. And more to the point, secondly in this, when John baptized Jesus, God declared the same authority over him, the Christ. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And so you see, John's ministry was not only authorized by God, John's ministry involved the validation of the ministry of Jesus. So John repudiates the chief priests and elders' ministry, and he validate, validates the ministry of Jesus. To the point that some people actually thought that John the Baptist was the one. They were like, are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, no, I am not the one. I'm just the MC in a sense. I'm not even worthy to untie the shoes of the one who's coming. I'm going to baptize you with water. But there is one who's coming who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. 
And then one day, John points to a man on the shore and he says to him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's pointed to Jesus and he says, he's the one. And when Jesus came up out of that water, the Father declared it from above audibly. John saw it declared visibly through the Spirit descending on Jesus. It was an incredible authentication of his authority. And John is so utterly sure that Jesus is the one with all authority that he lets his own disciples go and follow him. And he says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's all about him. It's not about me. So you see the pickle, right? You see the dilemma that these guys are faced with when they come challenging Jesus on his authority, but immediately he's questioning theirs. And you hear them discuss it. It's comical, isn't it? In verses 25 to 26, they say, excuse us a second (laughs) while we confer on this. If we say from heaven, he will ask, why did you not believe him? He'd be like, Why did you not put the clipboard down and just get in the water? Why not repent? You know, that repentance, if you're not aware of what that means, is just a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Specifically, a turning away. A turning away from sin in sorrow over it and turning to God, rejoicing in the fact that he's the savior of it. And then they say, but if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they hold that John was the prophet. In other words, if we say that John was some unauthorized phony like we actually believe he is, we will lose our credibility with the people in an instant because they all actually believe that John was a prophet. So they break from their huddle and declare their expertise. We don't know. How pathetic, really. And in an instant, their hearts are exposed. They're not interested in the truth of the matter. They're not actually interested in the response that they're given. They're not asking the question in search of that one answer that might just make them believe the gospel. They're only interested in answering in a way that maintains their own reputation, their own status, and their own influence, unlike John who said, it's all about him, it's not about me, they're saying, no, it really is all about me. Now, the authority of Jesus is undermined every day. I explained that at the start. But this passage, what it does is it helps us think about sharing the gospel with people who think that way and understanding some of the reasons why people actually reject Jesus And I think what we find is that more often than not, the root cause for a person's rejection is not necessarily a lack of evidence. It's pride. It's not necessarily a matter of the mind and the intellect. It's a matter of the will. It's a moral choice. It's a preference. It wasn't a matter of the mind for the religious leaders. It was a matter of the will. They had all the evidence they needed right in front of them. They'd had it for three years. They just refused to believe it. Why? Well, we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, they loved themselves and their status way more than they loved God, and they weren't willing to give up on that in order to follow Jesus. 
Now, I wonder if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you would say that you have not believed the gospel and you're ready to be convinced. You've come with lots and lots of questions. Can I ask you, could it be that your insistence on finding out more is just a mask for pride? I hope you don't mind me being so bold. But could it be that an unwillingness to humbly accept the evidence and trust Christ is more to do with the worries that we have in our hearts about the things that we have to give up and our unwillingness to do so? I looked into the Christian faith for six months before I professed faith in Christ. And there was definitely signs of this in my own life at that time. But I want us to see that Christ is, is better and better by far than any of the things that we would be called to give up in this life. Even status, reputation, all of that. The Apostle Paul says in one passage, a couple of passages in the New Testament, actually in Philippians, he would talk about what it means to have all of these credentials. He was a Pharisee after all. You know, a certain type of training. Born to a certain tribe, born to a certain bloodline, etc. All of these things which the Pharisees, the chief priests and elders would have been like, oh, tick, 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 tick. You know, up and coming is what you are. And he would say, I consider all of that to be rubbish compared to the all-surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Could you say that? Jim Elliot could say that. Jim Elliot was a missionary to the Indians, and he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Which is similar to what Jesus said, really. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. In other words, it is worth it. Don't let these things get in the way of letting you find the truth. And brothers and sisters, we need to keep these things in mind, don't we? Even as we're asking questions towards our life mission later on in this summer, you know, thinking about asking folks, how would you fix the world and so on? You know, we can expect these kind of questions concerning the authority of Jesus. Is he who he says he is? How do we know? Where do we look to to find this out? You may get questions like this. Commit these passages, or at least the principle, or at least to know where they are, so that if a retort comes back that's linked to this, you can go to it. Well, these religious leaders question Jesus' authority, but Jesus' question in return says to them, you know who's in charge. It's not you. It's me. He's taking control of the entire situation. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Do you know why he doesn't tell them? He's not trying to evade the question. He's actually just answered the question for them by asking them a couple of questions. But what he's communicating to them is, if you can't, as we'll see in a second, if you can't even look at John the Baptist and see what's going on in his ministry and repent and believe, you're not going to believe me because the issue is not in the evidence. It's in your hearts. The problem is in your hearts. And he underlines that by telling this parable in verses 28 to 32, as if to say, you know who's in charge. You know what to do. And that's the second point. Because when you recognize someone's authority, you obey their instructions. Um, you repent of disobedience when you recognize that you've not been walking in accordance with the, authorized, uh, with the authority that's been communicated. 
And that's the point of this parable in verses 28 to 31 of these two sons. And let's read it. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Now notice the authority of the father. He's in charge. The sons know what to do when he speaks, cause when you recognize someone's authority, uh, you obey their instructions. That's the point. So how does the first son respond? Verse 29, I will not, he answered. He's a defiant wee thing, isn't he? We know people like that. No one's going to tell him what to do. But then later, he changed his mind and went. He repented. Remember what I said earlier on? He had a change of mind that led to a change in behavior to the point that he actually, in the end, obeyed the father. Even though he was defiant at first, and wrongfully so, he obeyed. What about the second son? Well, the second son is known to us all. He's the one playing PlayStation who, when you call on him, saying, Archie, come and set the table, he says, come in, Daddy, come in, Mummy, be right there. Then you're like, Archie, come and set the table, coming, of course, be right there, but never does. Five times later, you know, you're walking into the room and you're turning off the telly, and they're like, what did you do that for? Well, he's, this is what this second son is like. Verse 30 says, the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Go and work in the vineyard. He said, I will, sir. So he's keen, isn't he? But he did not go. Ah, so he's a hypocrite, actually. He's not as keen as his word suggests. So Jesus asks in verse 31, which of the two did, the fa did what the father wanted? The answer is easy. I asked my kids this week. They gave me the answer. And the Pharisees, at last, these religious leaders, get it right as well. The first son. And that's true. Because what you have in this parable is ultimately two sons who are disobedient, but only one son repents. In other words, those who are happy to do what the father says, listening to what he says, they're the ones, they're, they're happy to say, let's do it, but ultimately they don't, therefore they're disobedient. Even the defiant one is disobedient at first. And yet he says that he will go. He's sorry. And Jesus says to these proud religious leaders on this occasion, you actually think you are very holy. You think you are so much closer to God, you lord it over people. I mean, you guys should have been the first to see and respond to the good news and the call for repentance. Because despite all of your good works, no one is made right with God on account of what they do. He said, you should have been the first to see and respond to the good news, but here's the reality, Jesus says, the scum of the earth are entering the kingdom ahead of you. That's why he says, tax collectors and sinners are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Now, tax collectors in those days were considered to be traitors to their nation, extortionate in their taxation. They were working for the invading Roman army. And the prostitutes were about as unclean as an Israelite could get. So these were people who were overtly sinning and outrageously disobedient. They were unclean. They could not come in to the presence of God in the temple. They had been rejected. That's why they clustered together, actually, as we often see in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus says something astounding. He says, they're in 
because they've actually repented of their disobedience and in the end obeyed. But you, religiously good people, are not because you've not repented of your disobedience. You think that you're being obedient, but you're just like the second son. God calls you again and again to repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news and you say, yes, sir, coming. But you never do. because it's all about you. That's Jesus' indictment on them. And he says, you're the ones who should believe. He said, you have heard God speak through John the Baptist, but you did not believe. That's what verse 32 is all about. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. There's a bit of debate in the text as to whether or not that's talking about the righteous life that John actually lived or whether it's talking about the way of righteousness. In other words, the way that a person can be made right with God, I think it leans more towards the latter myself because he was the one, of course, who pointed to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, for John came to show you the way of righteousness. He was a good man preaching a good word about God's great salvation, but you did not believe him. And here's the double indictment. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. In other words, they're still, they're entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you, religious people. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So he says there's a double indictment here. Number one, you had a good man giving you a good word about a great message. You didn't believe him. You didn't repent and believe the good news. And even when you saw that message at work, powerfully transforming lives of people that you would have thought they are are the scum of the earth. There is no way that God could possibly love them or set his affection on them or save them. They're the ones who are saved. You don't even recognize that. You don't recognize the power of God at work. And so there is a double indictment on you. You, you. you heard God speak through John. You saw God at work through John, but still you did not repent and believe the good news. Now, this then is quite clearly for us a warning for religious hypocrites. People who think that they're right with God because of the good things that they do, because they think They've got some kind of spiritual one-upmanship on all the, all the other people that they, they, they compare themselves with. You know, because they think, oh, I'm glad I'm not like those people on the streets or in prisons. You know, I've got a four-bedroom house in Kerstorfen and I give to charity. God must love me. Here's my back. Pat it. No, that's, that's not the case whatsoever. God has not made, ever. God has not made... Other people's righteousness, the measuring line for entry into the kingdom of God... His own righteousness is the standard. And God in his infinite perfections is infinitely holy, sinless in all things at all times. And so the righteous requirement of the law is that we live 100% righteous lives. And who can stand up and say that? Well, no one can. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous, not even one. And everyone needs to repent. 
Because God has not made the good life, a good life, the single determining factor for entrance into his kingdom. God has made faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who has lived a perfect life, the single determining factor in who enters his kingdom. Faith in Christ, that's it. Trust in Jesus, that's it. Which means that people like us and people that we talk to who are uh, of a religious bent have to realize that when we think we're good and great, our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace. Every day, every minute, we always need God's grace. And if we're like the religious people here who think that by coming along to a church service week in, week out, by joining in some of the activities of the life of the church, if we think that just simply being here but not actually repenting of our sin, being sorry over it, and putting our faith and trust in Jesus, then we will find ourselves lost and rejected on that day when he comes. And the message of Jesus in this passage is repent and believe. Turn away from your sin. Believe the gospel. Take Jesus at his word. When he says he forgave us for our sins when he died on the cross. But at the very same time, this parable shows us that there's glorious, this is a glorious story if you're a sinner. This is a glorious story if you think, man alive, how could God ever love me? Do you know there's some of the awful things that I have done? You know, I talked to the person that brought me about Christianity and so on, and I talk about the kind of forgiveness that, that God offers, and I think, well, that's good, but I just really cannot bring myself to believe that that forgiveness extends to the things that I still consider unspeakable in this relationship. But this parable shows us that our worst days are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. His grace to those who are considered the scum of society is here. We've seen it throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus himself went and ate and drank with these people, not as an endorsement of their practices, but to preach the Gospel to them, to demonstrate that God loves them, and to call them to repentance and to walk in newness of life. And the offer of a lifetime is in this passage today. What what do you need to be made right with God, no matter what you've done? Well, the answer is in Christ's indictment of the religious leaders for what they did not do. Verse 25, they did not believe. Verse 32, you did not believe. And again, the end of verse 32, you did not repent and believe him. Now, some people are astounded at this. They're like, what, really? All I have to do is believe, and you, I say yes. And you say, well, that all sounds so easy. Do you know that is exactly what Roger Chisholm said this week when Owen led him to Christ? Praise God. This all seems so easy. How can it be that his, his question, how could it be that a lifetime of rejection of God can end with me you know, so late in the day, putting my faith and trust in God and receiving, as you say, all the rights and privileges of sonship of this Father and the promise of eternal life. I haven't deserved any of this. 
And that's true. But it's only easy for Roger and every other brother and sister in this room who has professed faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus endured the hardship of the cross, taking our sin upon himself, paying our penalty for us, and doing it so successfully that in the end, the Son of God declared, it is finished, no more to do. And three days later, God the Father declared him to be his son with power by his resurrection from the dead, saying, it really is done. Christ's declaration was the transaction. The resurrection was the receipt. There's nothing more to do. Christ has done it all. Put your hand in his. Do not make the mistake of the chief priests and the elders. Take hold of him and his salvation like the tax collectors and the sinners. And let us not be slow in sharing this gospel with others out there.